In June 2004, the body of 63-year-old Kenneth Mann was found at his flat in Carlos Street, Walsall, in the West Midlands, in England. What was shocking and made headline news was that his body had lain there undisturbed for six years. Mr. Mann, who was described as a loner and a bit of an eccentric, died on or about September the 28th, 1998, following in a fall and treatment as an outpatient in hospital. One of the pads from an ECG test was found inside his socks. And the coroner, Robin Balmain, recorded a death, a verdict of death by natural causes, commenting, society needs to ask how such a situation could arise in the 21st century. Well, you might say that's a very extreme incident, and you're right. But it reflects a growing trend. Highlighted more recently and much closer to home in an essay in the Guardian newspaper on January the 14th, 2006, entitled, Modern Death, People Are Killing Themselves and Their Children, and no one seems to notice. It focused on the work of the Edinburgh City Mortuary and the work of Professor Anthony Bussitil, Regis Professor of Forensic Medicine at the University of Edinburgh and a Clinical Forensic Medical Examiner for the Lothian and Borders Police. He's worked in the mortuary for 19 years, dealing with some 40 bodies a week, just over 2,000 a year in this city of ours of half a million souls. And he says in the, fa in the past five years, he has noticed a change in the pattern of his work. I quote, The deaths have become tinged with such despair, he says. There are more suicides than there used to be. Suicide used to be the prerogative of the young, 18 to 25 years old. Now we're seeing suicides right up into the 70s. We're also seeing more and more bodies that have been lying around for weeks. More than ever before, people are dying at home, on their own, and nobody cares. No neighbours have knocked. No one has taken a blind bit of notice. We are, without doubt, becoming less and less of a caring society. You see, we live in an age in which the extended family is fast disappearing and in which the nuclear family is rapidly disintegrating. And the result is that more and more people live with few, if any, meaningful relationships and more and more people die without anyone really caring. Now, it should not be so. It was not meant to be so. Human beings are made for a purpose. We are designed by God for relationships. And last week in our 40 days of purpose, we saw that the first and supreme purpose for which we are made is a relationship with God himself. So last week we looked at this great theme and we've been studying it, hope you've been reading the book daily. Purpose number one, worship, you were planned for God's pleasure. Today we see, and in this week that lies ahead of us, in our daily readings, in our small groups, 
And it's great that around 500 people are meeting in over 40 groups around the city. This week we focus on our relationship which flows from a relationship with God. That is our relationship with others. So here's our second theme. Fellowship, you were formed for God's family. So I want to look with you this morning about what does it mean to belong to God's family. A family whose membership ranges from those who have no human family to those who have the most supportive families in the world. And I want to focus on two things this morning. First of all, under the title Father and Sons, I want to look at becoming God's family. How do you become a member of God's family? And then I want to turn to a second theme. Brothers and sisters, being God's family. Once you're in, how do you live in that family? So first of all, look with me as we focus on the first theme. Father and sons, becoming God's family. In each of these sections, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture from God's Word to help us. So turn to Galatians 3, verse 26 to chapter 4, verse 7. It's page 1170. If you don't have a Bible, just look around. There are Bibles in the pews. Ask someone to pass one to you. We're going to read this first and look at this first theme together. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, messenger of Jesus Christ to the Christians in the Roman province of Galatians. That's why it's called Galatians. Chapter 3, verse 26. This is what he writes to these Christians. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. It's often assumed that the Bible teaches that every human being is a child of God and that we're all children of God. However, while it's true that we're all made in the image of God and share a common humanity, we are not all children of God by birth or by nature. On one occasion, recorded in the Gospels, Jesus actually said to some of the Jewish religious leaders, you belong to your father, the devil. And he said to them, you are not sons of God, you are slaves to sin. And what was true of them is true of each one of us. We are alienated from God. We do not naturally know God as our Father. And this is our big human problem, why we don't know our purpose. 
writing to the Christians in another letter in the city of Ephesus, the Apostle Paul reminds them at one time, he says, you, are, you were without hope and without God in the world, Ephesians 2.12. But we are formed for God's family. And God didn't abandon us and leave us to our own devices because of our rebellion against him. Rather, Galatians, that we've just read these wonderful verses, we read that just at the right time, God put into plan in history his special plan. And it's an adoption plan. Look at verse, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Those words translated the full rights of sons are just one word in the original. It conveys the idea of adoption. When Paul wrote these words, adoption was very, a very familiar practice in the Roman world. A rich man, maybe he'd got no heirs, would adopt a promising young man and take him into his family, give him his name and give him all the rights that came with being an adopted son just the same as if he'd been born into the family. Now, that's the idea behind this word here, the full rights of sons. Literally in Greek it says, God has given us sonship. He says God had this great purpose. Did you know that when God sent his son into the world, his plan was, by sending his son, that God might adopt many sons into his family. So God's adoption plan involved two things. First of all, it involved the gift of his son. Here it says, he came to redeem us. That is to pay the price because we were in slavery to sin so that we might be freed. And when the slave is freed, the father says, I want to welcome you into my family as my son. Now the word son here, it's very important to notice. I wonder if any of the women were embarrassed singing, Father God, I wonder how I managed to exist without the knowledge of your parenthood, but now I am your son, I'm adopting your family. You think, well hang on a minute, I'm a woman, how can I be a son? Well it's a biblical term, it doesn't have anything to do with gender, it's to do with rights. In the ancient world it was the son who inherited the rights, not the daughter. Now what he's saying here is, whether you're male or female, you have the same privileges, the same rights as a son in the ancient world. So you can sing, yes, I am your son. I am your child. Sing whatever you feel comfortable with, as long as you understand what it means. So look what it says. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you're a son, God has made you his heir. Now, this gets even better, this story, all right? Because God sent his son into the world to pay the price to free us so that we become members of his family, adopted into his family. Now, adoption is a wonderful thing. Some of you here were adopted. That's great. But no matter who you are, if you've been adopted into your family, nothing can change the nature you inherited from your biological parents. But here's the wonderful thing when you come into God's family. God not only gives you the gift of his son, but he gives you the gift of his spirit. His Holy Spirit comes within you to give you a new nature. So you're born again of the spirit of God. So adoption means the gift of God's son, but also the gift of his spirit. Look at verse 6 of chapter 4. Because you are his sons, God's, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. The word Abba is, is an Aramaic word. It's an intimate word that a child would use towards his father. 
or her father. We enter into a personal, intimate relationship with God as our Father. Now again, don't be confused about this. The Bible does not teach that God is like a father. Because if that's the case, and you had a bad father, this is not a very good idea or image. No, the Bible teaches that God is the Father, and our fathers are poor imitations at best of God the perfect Father. For those of us who had a bad experience of fathers... God is the father we never knew. And for those of us who had good fathers, God the father is better than the best. You know God as your own father. So you may ask, how do I become a member of this family? How do I get in? Well, it's here in these verses. It's received through faith in Jesus Christ. Look what he says. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And he goes on to say, regardless of religious pedigree, Jews and Gentiles, regardless of social status, whether you're a slave or a free person, regardless of gender, neither male nor female, God has no favorite children. I wonder whether you believe that. You believe that some people in Charlotte Chapel are more favorite children than you are if you're in God's family. Now what he says here is, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I've explained it with words, but it's just an amazing thought, isn't it? That God takes people like you and me, no matter what your background is, no matter how smart you are or not smart, no matter what gender you are, male or female, No matter what your social status is. And God welcomes you on the same grounds as everyone else into his family, simply through faith in Jesus Christ. So I simply ask you in this first part, becoming God's family, are you still without hope and without God in the world? Or are you a son of God? Are you a member of God's family? If so, you discover something incredible that follows. Because when you become a Christian, when you come into God's family, you discover that this is an incredible family scattered throughout the world, millions and millions of people. So let's turn to our second theme, brothers and sisters being God's family. And to help us do this, I want to focus on another passage of Scripture. You remember those remarkable events on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the waiting disciples of Jesus. Empowered by the Spirit, they go out into the streets telling people about Jesus. And the crowds want to know what is happening. And so Peter, one of the twelve that Jesus chose, stands up and he gives an explanation. And I want to read from the conclusion of his message. Now you need to turn back, if you're in Galatians, to Acts chapter 2. This is on page 1094. And let's first of all read from verses 42 to, 40, uh, to 36 to 41. This is the end of his message, alright? He's been speaking to these people. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Not surprisingly, the people were cut to the heart when they heard this. And they asked Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? How can we be forgiven for what we've done? 
crucifying our Messiah. Peter replied, notice, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It's the same as Galatians. Receive Christ. And you will receive what? The same gift that we focused on. The gift of the Holy Spirit. Who's it for? This promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now that is incredible. Some of you had children this past year, and I'm sure you're very grateful to God for that. Imagine having septuplets, seven members all in one time. Just be thankful that you're not like this family on the picture. But on the day of Pentecost, following Peter's sermon, we read that 3,000 were added to God's family that day. Now that's a growing family. But this is all part of God's wonderful plan. The book of Hebrews says that God sent his son Jesus into the world and his plan was, it's a lovely phrase, to bring many sons to glory. To bring many more people into God's family. But then that chapter in Hebrews adds something even more remarkable. Look what it says in Hebrews 2, 11 to 12. It's on the screen. It says, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. Now, here's something remarkable. We don't focus on this very often. We, we speak quite rightly of Jesus being our Savior and our Lord. But in this verse, it says, Jesus is our brother. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers. So, you see, if I am in that relationship with Christ, if I am his brother and you are his brother, then you and I are brothers because we're members of the same family. We are brothers and sisters. Now, I know that it sounds kind of old-fashioned and hackneyed to talk about people being brothers and sisters, but it's the concept behind it that matters. Through Jesus, we are related to one another and every member of the family of God. Why? Because we all have the same spiritual life of the Holy Spirit coursing through our spiritual veins. And that's why you've got this wonderful affinity. That wherever you go in the world and you meet with fellow Christians, immediately, though you may not know them very well, there is, there is a, it's hard to describe, isn't it, as you're Christian, there's a meeting of spirit with spirit that says, we belong together. We have something in common. We're family members. I think of families sometimes who discover they've got a long-lost relative they've never met in the past. And they meet up after maybe 20, 30 years. Amazing. And there's a kind of affinity there, isn't there? Now imagine this, wherever you go in the world, you meet with people who are fellow Christians. You have something in common with them. The Apostle Paul writing to Christians in Corinth who kept falling out into little groups saying, my group's better than your group, which sometimes happens in churches, sadly. He writes to them this. He says, look, you share the same life. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, were all given the one spirit to drink. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Now, the word the New Testament has to describe that life that we share together is the word fellowship. It's a Greek word that literally is made up of two parts. It literally means shared life. 
Now, fellowship is more than just saying hello over a cup of coffee and did you watch the football yesterday afternoon or whatever it is that the women talk about in the lounge, which is probably something far more personal and intimate. It is sharing on a much deeper level. It is sharing our life together. Now, what does that look like in practice? Well, just read on in Acts 2 if you've got it in front of you. As Luke describes together the kind of shared life that the new family of God enjoyed together. Verse 42. They, that's these 3,000 plus 120 in the upper room and other people as well, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together, had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added daily to their number those who are being saved. That's Christian family life. So what makes that kind of family? Well, very briefly, as we start to draw to a conclusion, and you can tease this out for yourself and think it through for yourself, and I think there are tapes on this that we've preached on in the past, but notice four features of a healthy family. One, the one that Robert talked about to the children. Learning together. They focused on, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, probably surprising if many of us put this at the top of our list. Yet that's the first aspect of life that they shared together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In the older versions it says, to the apostles' doctrine. Of course, it wasn't their doctrine that they invented. It was the teaching of Jesus that was passed on to them. And you remember what Jesus said in that great commission before he left earth? He came to them and said, Matthew 28, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Surely I'll be with you till the end of the age. And now on the day of Pentecost, they begin to put this into practice. Because these 3,000 people haven't spent three years like the disciples with Jesus. They don't know what Jesus has taught. They don't know what they should believe. They don't know the basis for their faith. And so these apostles begin to teach them what they have learned and pass on the good news of Jesus. John Stock comments, The very first evidence Luke mentions of the Spirit's presence in the church is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. One might perhaps say that the Holy Spirit opened a school in Jerusalem that day. Its teachers were the apostles whom Jesus had appointed and there were 3,000 pupils in the kindergarten. However, the important thing here is, and Robert again said so well in our children's talk, it's not what we teach, it's what we learn. There is a whole world of difference between teaching and learning. What's the difference? Well, it's like the best diet that's ever been devised. Eat as much as you like, but don't swallow. And teaching is explaining the truth, but learning is accepting it, swallowing it, making it part of our life together so that it becomes part of us and makes us strong. It's that difference that Jesus highlighted. You remember as he drew towards the end of that great Sermon on the Mount and told the story of the two builders and he said the wise builder is the person who hears these words of mine 
puts them into practice is the wise man who built his house on a rock. It's obeying the truth. The foolish person is the one who hears it, doesn't put it into practice. So we become strong as a family together by learning together. Notice the second feature, by sharing together. He says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. It's no accident that fellowship follows teaching. Any relationship that's not based on truth is no more than friendship. Christian fellowship is based on the truth of the good news of Jesus, which we've received and experienced together. But Luke, I think, is being a bit more specific here. He literally says, the fellowship. That is, local expressions of fellowship that these Christians shared together in Jerusalem. As soon as you become a Christian, you enter not only in this new relationship with God, but with all the other Christians round about you. Maybe you've just become a Christian, a Christian explored, and you've come along to Charlotte Chapel. Well, here's your brothers and sisters, and they're a very diverse bunch from all sorts of backgrounds. But what should characterize us is the love that we have for one another. In fact, Jesus said it's the mark of his followers. He said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Now, you might say, well, love, what's that? Is it kind of some mystical experience? Well, there is feeling involved in it. But it is love in action. And that's what we read of these early disciples. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. It wasn't enforced. It was voluntary. A practical expression of love to other needy family members. We're celebrating today the completion of the building at Nidring. And as you know, around £700,000 has been raised by the congregation for the building out there. I'll tell you what's the most difficult thing is trying to explain this to people who aren't members of God's family. I had the reporter from the Evening News, I think it was last year. I think she rang me back six times in one day, and each time she was basically saying the same thing. Why do these people give this money? What's in it for them? And are these all loans where they get the money back later? And you must have a couple of really rich people who have given all the money. And each time I just tried to explain to her, I said, no, it's not. They just gave the money because we're Christians and we want to share with other people. It's just almost impossible for people to comprehend that. There's nothing unique about this. Our, our friends at Holyrood Abbey raised, I think, over a million pounds. At St. Paul's and St. George's, I think their project was four million pounds. It just really is incredible the way that Christians give practically. Now, that applies on different levels. Some of you know that last year, just in retiring offerings, this is not our normal offerings, but to things outside like Bethany on Christmas Day, we gave over 50,000 pounds to needy causes in addition to everything else. That's practical Christianity. Some of you experienced that in your own relationships. Someone gives you a gift at Christmas or sees that you're in need and provides you with something or gives you a, says, can I babysit so you can go out? It's practical expressions of Christian love. John the Apostle of Love writes, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions, sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us love, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. 
1 John 3, 16 to 18. That's the second feature of a healthy family. Learning together, sharing together, our time is going. Thirdly, worshipping together. They met together and devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and prayer. Now, I don't want to contradict what we said last week, that worship is all of our lives, all of the time. Not just what we do when we come together, but it includes what we do when we come together. It's what we sometimes call, it sounds kind of formal, corporate worship. It sounds kind of business-like, but it's, okay, family worship, if you like. Now, this is not an optional extra. It's an indispensable part of every Christian's life. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament is written to Christians who were thinking of giving up on their faith. And the writer says, don't give up meeting together. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We meet together today. I hope you don't meet together because you feel you have to. I hope you're here today because you want to be here. And you want to be here regularly. I hope you're in a small group because you want to be there. Sometimes people say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't get on with other Christians. Rick Warren puts it like this. I was struck by his words. He said, the church is the bride of Christ. What if I said I love you, but I can't stand your wife? How would you like that? It's very telling, isn't it? And what did they do when they met together? Well, Luke mentions two things, and again, we don't have time to look at them. He talks about the breaking of bread. Not just the meals together, but probably including that. But sharing bread and wine together, as Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Next week, we'll meet together as a church to do that. Are you looking forward to it? I'll be there. And prayer, literally, it's the prayer, suggesting special occasions when Christians came together for prayer. We do that in small groups. We do that monthly as we meet together to pray for our missionary family. I'm concerned that when I first came to this church, our missionary prayer meeting, we committed to pray for our missionaries, we got around about 100 people at it. The last one we had about 40. Friends, we're committed to the prayer, to meet together, to pray with other Christians. He records where they met. They met in the temple courts, in the precincts of the temple, in big crowds until they were thrown out. But they also met in small groups in homes. Some people say, well, why do we have these small groups around the city? Can't we just meet together? Yes, you can, but there is no real fellowship in a large group like this at a personal level. But when you meet in a small group of some of you have discovered, maybe for the first time, you can be honest and share with one another and support one another, encourage one another. Do we have that same kind of commitment to the church family? Is it an option or a necessity? And it was characterized by joy. They met with glad and sincere hearts. And as such, this early church was attractive to other people. Notice the fourth feature. Learning together, sharing together, worshipping together. Finally, growing together. It wasn't a kind of planned program, was it? We read that everyone who came into contact with these Christians, everyone was filled with awe. They recognized that God was powerfully at work in this family. And the result was they enjoyed the favor of all the people. And they wanted to join God's family. And so God added daily to the church those who were being saved. Oh, you say, well, it was God who did it. Yes, it was. But God uses his family to attract others to himself. When people see true Christian family life, love in action, they'll be drawn and attracted to it. And God will add to his church daily those 
who are being saved. Well, we've covered a lot of ground this morning. Time's almost gone. But let me finish very practically by asking you two questions that arise out of this. These are two personal questions, all right? First of all, are you a member of the family of God? Are you a member of the family of God? How do you become a member? Well, there's no payment you can make to join. There's also no waiting list like certain clubs and things that you sign up for and some golf club you have to wait 10 years till somebody dies before you get the next place. No, there's no waiting list, no payment. You simply become a member by receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. By turning back to God. Jesus told that wonderful parable of the prodigal son who, who abandoned his family and his father and he said, I'm going to go off and do something better. Then he ended up in a pigsty. And when he came back home, you remember what the father said? Well, you're welcome, son, but you're no longer my son. You're going to be a servant. No, he welcomed him back as a son. And maybe you're far from God this morning and you need to come back. God loves prodigals. The father loves prodigal children. Those verses we read in the children's talk in full. John writes in his gospel about the choice about Jesus. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. Now, here's the great tragedy. It's not that you might die like Kenneth Mann, and no one would miss you. The great tragedy is this. You can die with all your human family around about you, yet without belonging to the family of God, without ever becoming a child of God. Second question. Maybe you say, yes, I am. I'm a member of God's family. Praise God. I'm a Christian. Here's the second question. Are you a member of a church? I know the word member and membership, they're not popular ideas today, but the word member and membership, I was struck by this, it had never occurred to me before, it actually originates in the New Testament. The Bible talks about us all being members of one body. In Ephesians 2:19, the Apostle Paul says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Rick Warren comments again, I think it's true of America, it's true of here. He says, you know, you hear some people say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't want to belong to any church. That doesn't make any sense. The church is where you live out what it means to be a Christian. That's like saying, I'm a football player, but I don't want to be part of a team. I'm a tuba player, but I don't want to play in an orchestra. That's like saying, I'm a bee, but I don't want to be part of a hive. A Christian without a church family is an orphan. God meant us to be part of a family. And that's the second great tragedy. To be a Christian loner and to die a Christian orphan. And it's possible. But it should not be so. For you and I were made for a purpose. For fellowship. You were formed for God's family. Let's pray together.